Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, here's the game plan for tonight. I've got so much information to finish up Revelation that I'm going to hold questions till the very end. So if you have a question, hold it. Because I, don't, I want to make sure I get through everything, okay? And here's the second caveat that I want to also say. Like I said last week, you may not agree with everything that I say tonight, okay? Because I'm going to be giving you, we're going to be going like bird's eye view on some issues in Revelation. And maybe I've never heard that interpretation before. Well, that's fine. Save your question. Then towards the end, we're going to look at the three predominant end times views. And I will, at that time, I will hand out the charts and the graphs. And I will draw it on the board and we'll follow along with this because it's too hard to draw on the board and have that up on the screen. Also, to those of you that are listening online, this will be posted as a PDF. So when we start talking about the charts and graphs, don't freak out. It'll be something that you can download online. So let's start with chapter 11. Okay? We ended up last week with chapter 7. In chapter 7, we saw two scenes, one earthly one heavenly, the same group of people. The 144,000, we said, was representative of all people of God, past, present, and future, that were sealed on their foreheads. So here's the question. Do Do I see your seal? Do you see my seal? Is there a literal seal on people's foreheads or is it symbolic of of being owned by God? Then we saw a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, tongue, language, people in heaven praising God. And what we said about Revelation is that apocalyptic literature is meant to be cyclical. It's meant to be um, not linear but to be repeated um, with different things. So as we get into chapter 11, we find out, and by the way, guys, we might not read Everything, I may just be giving you overviews of what's going on because there's so much to to cover tonight. I want to get finished because we're not coming back next week. So I don't want to leave you hanging. So in chapter 11, let's look at verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, when we get to the dispensational view later on, the, the, the predominant view, the view that I don't hold to, that, but the predominant view is that this is three and a half years into the Great Tribulation where the literal temple is rebuilt and the two witnesses that come down are Elijah and Moses and they're literally coming down and they're witnessing in the earth during the seven-year tribulation with the literal rebuilt temple. Okay, so here's the question. Is the temple of God literally here a literal temple or should we take this metaphorically for the people of God? And I've already tipped my hand on how I interpret it. And again, you may disagree with my interpretation, but I'm taking this as if what the temple here is, is that John is being told to measure the temple in the sense that in chapter 7, the people of God were sealed, and now they're measured in the sense that sealed means protection, Measured means that they're guarded through something. Okay, so let's just talk about this temple metaphor. Is there anywhere else in the New Testament where the church is talked about as the temple? Yes. 
1 Corinthians 3, 16-17. Do you not know that you, plural in the original language, y'all if you're from the South, you guys, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So are we the temple? Yes. Just flat out says you are the temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So again, metaphorically speaking, we are the temple. Ephesians 2.19-22, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and which the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Spiritually, are we the temple? Yes, we've got three verses that say that. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What's a spiritual house? A temple to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. So here's what I think John is saying. Now you can take this, if you are more in the dispensational camp, and we'll talk about that when we get towards the end, you may take this as a literal temple during the end times, during that three and a half years, halfway through a seven-year period of tribulation. You can take that literally, and I have no problem with it. Or you can take it symbolically like I do in this sense. The symbolism of measuring the church means that the church will be protected through the trials that come on earth. It doesn't mean they will be taken out of tribulation, but that through God's grace, He will ensure they endure to the end. So, I've tipped my hand on that as well. Will the church go through the tribulation? In my opinion, Yes, there are some people that say, no, again, we're not going to be dogmatic and say, you're wrong, you're right, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm just going to say what I believe and leave that to you guys to figure out. But anyway, what we're seeing here in chapter 11 is this whole idea that the gospel, the church, is advancing the gospel. Why the two witnesses? Well, let's talk about the two witnesses here for a moment. It's this whole idea of the gospel going forth by these two witnesses. Now, if you take a literal interpretation, you may think the two witnesses are literally two people that go around witnessing in the city of Jerusalem during that final three and a half years. That's a predominant view. Or let me ask you another question. Could the two witnesses also be a symbolism for the church? What did the Old Testament say? Truth was verified by what? At least two or three witnesses. So the Old Testament interpreted the two witnesses as if people coming forward to testify to the truth. Also, in, John, or in Luke chapter 10, does Jesus send out his missionaries what? Two by two. So what I think is happening here is that the church is going forward and witnessing to the gospel on the earth, no matter what era we're in, 
And what's going to happen when the church advances the gospel on the earth? Is it going to go easy? Are people going to like what we have to say? Is it going to go tough? Some places right now in the world, it's very, very tough. You're in prison. You're beaten. You're, you're thrown in jail. In America, it's not there yet, okay? But any time that the church on the earth goes forward and witnesses to the truth, will there be opposition, okay? In chapter 7, we saw the church counted. The great multitude, the 144,000, the same group of people. Now in chapter 11, we see the church measured. And so in both instances, whether the church is on the earth or whether the church is in heaven, when there's scenes of the church on earth, almost always in Revelation from here on out, you're going to have the gospel trying to go forward and opposition after opposition after opposition. And so let me ask you, does that happen now or is that for a future time? Yes, (laughs) it's happening now, and it will happen in the future. I believe, as we'll see in just a few moments when we get to the end times views, there will be an intensified type of persecution, an intensified tribulation. But in all cultures, even John, we go back to the very beginning. What did John say in chapter 1? I'm undergoing the tribulation right now. So the early churches were going through that. Okay, so in chapter 11... Think about this way, just symbolism. The church is going forward with the gospel, witnessing to it, and things aren't going to go well. And then in chapter 12, we find out the reason why things don't go well. Who is behind the struggling church advancing with the gospel? Who brings about the persecution and the opposition? Satan, the devil. So let's look at chapter 12, 7 through 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angel fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered Him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. And how? Number two, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. Two interpretations of this. Some people believe that this is happening before the earth was created. It was a cosmic battle between Satan and and Michael and the archangels before creation, and that's when Satan was thrown down to the earth. Other interpretations see that as happening when Jesus Christ sends his witnesses two by two out, and the advancement of the gospel happens in Luke chapter 10, and, and, and when Jesus died on the cross, Satan was, was brought down. I think both interpretations are, are true. But I think that it's interesting that in Luke 10, Jesus sends out his 70 disciples two by two. What have we just seen in chapter 11? How many witnesses? Two. two. In Luke chapter 10, how does he send? He sends out what? Two by two. Now, they go out and they preach the gospel of the kingdom. 
And they see these great things happen. People get saved. People get healed. Uh, Communities are transformed. And notice what happens. When the two witnesses, two by two in chapter 10 of Luke, come back to Jesus, notice what Jesus says after the two by two go out and witness. It's very, very interesting what Jesus says. I want you to see the parallel with what we see here in Revelation. Luke 10, 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What did Jesus see when... The 72, two by two, went out and preached the gospel. Satan fall like lightning. What do we have in Revelation chapter 12? Satan was thrown down. Now, I think that ultimately... Did I skip a a blank there? Maybe I have it written down. I believe that ultimately when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, Satan was bound in the sense that he was thrown down to the earth and not given ultimate authority, but some power. Because it says the wrath of Satan has come because he knows his time is short. Does Satan know the end of the Bible? Does he know what his fate is? Does Satan know he's going to be thrown in the lake of fire? So what's he going to try to do between now and then? He's going to try to inflict as much damage as he can to ruin the gospel and to ruin the church. He's like a pit bull on a leash. He can only go as far as the leash will take him. But he can put, if you get close enough to the pit bull on the leash, what can he do? He can do a lot, but once he gets out far enough, I mean, there, there's a point where God doesn't give Satan ultimate control. He's still thrown down to the earth, but the point is he knows his time is short. Now, it's interesting the the terminology that's used here for the devil. He's called that ancient serpent. Well, that reminds us of what? The Garden of Eden. When Satan came as a serpent and deceived and tempted Eve with the forbidden fruit. He's called the devil, which means slanderer or accuser. He's called Satan, which means adversary or enemy. So let's just look at a few passages of scripture that talk about what Satan is doing while he's on the earth. Satan is doing this right now. Satan has done this from the very beginning. And Satan will continue to do this until he's thrown into the lake of fire. So what does it say? First Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to avow to devour. What is he also called in this passage of Scripture? He's called the deceiver of the world. Where does it say that? Yeah, verse 9. Verse 9, the dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. What does Satan do? 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world, that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So he blinds unbelievers. He attacks Christians. 
He's the deceiver. He's the slanderer. He's the accuser. He uses schemes and tactics in order to um, deceive and accuse. So, uh, 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. Satan can outwit people. He's got designs. He's got methods. Now, verse 12, we find his ultimate mission. His wrath has come because he knows that his time is short. He knows that his time is short. So what does he want to do? He comes to make war against who? He comes to make war against those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who does that sound like? Who's he making war against? Christians. Does Satan wage war against Christians? You bet. You bet. And so here's the question. If Satan is making war against those who hold to the testimony of the truth, what have we just seen? When you go out and the church tries to advance the gospel and tries to witness and tries to carry forth the gospel, Satan doesn't like that, does he? So here's the question. If Satan is a deceiver and an enemy and an accuser and has blinded the minds of unbelievers and is waging war on Christians, what do you think he will attack the most? The gospel. Do you think that Satan loves the gospel? Satan hates the gospel. Why does Satan hate the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation of all who believe. So if he can keep people blinded and keep the church not presenting the gospel and keeping the church not advancing the gospel, then he thinks he's won. So what happens when you advance the... If a church or you as an individual gets serious about advancing the gospel, what should you expect? Spiritual warfare, resistance, opposition. Did it happen to Jesus? Did it happen to disciples? Did it happen to the early church in Acts? Does it happen to us today? Think about the difference between D-Day and V-E Day. Do you guys know the difference? On June 6, 1944, it was D-Day. You guys remember D-Day? The, the, the troops landed on the beach in Normandy. It was basically 130,000 troops landed. That was technically the end of World War II. I mean, Hitler knew once, once you got into France... And there was also some things going on in southern Italy and Africa. But once that happened, Hitler knew the war was over. Okay. Was the, the war technically over? Okay, what was the next big battle? You had the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge was the bloodiest war in World War II with the most casualties. When did World War II end? It actually ended a year later when it was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. So between D-Day and V-E-Day, even though it was like this, did, did Hitler, even though Hitler knew he lost, did he sit back and say, well, we're just going to kind of, he ramped it up even more. Think about it this way. D-Day was when Jesus died on the cross. V-E-Day is when Satan is thrown at the lake of fire. We're in between those two times right now. The war's won, but it's not technically over. And just like Hitler trying to ramp up his attacks against the allied troops, Satan's going to ramp up his attacks against the church in this period of time. And, and here's the issue. He knows he's lost, just like Hitler knew he lost. Hitler knew it was the end. 
He just couldn't admit it. So he kept waging more warfare. I want to show you the words to the famous hymn by Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, who's our ancient foe? The, the, Satan. He doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his, triumph, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we, shall not, or we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let me just ask you, what's the one little word that's going to topple Satan? It starts with a G, the gospel. Okay? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 13, we could spend a month of Sundays talking about this, but basically, here's the progression. The church is going forward with the gospel, and they're getting attacked. We find out from a cosmic level that Satan is ultimately the one behind the attacks. But in chapter 13, we find out the two helpers of Satan that are used on the earth to carry out this attack, the beast and the false prophet. So in chapter 13, Satan is ultimately behind all the persecution, all opposition to God's people on earth and all ages, but he uses two helpers to accomplish this. So in chapter 13, we've got the first beast. This first beast is gruesome. It comes out of the sea. It's this representation of Satan's persecuting power operating in and through the nations of the world and its governments. In the Old Testament, the sea represents nations and governments. So how does what the beast, in my opinion, this beast is a symbolic representation for governments and nations that are used by Satan to go against God's people. Is that happening in, world, in our world today? Nations and governments. Okay, this is external opposition from outside. Okay, it's hideous. If you look at this, it's hideous. It's got a mortal wound. It's, it's just this gross, grotesque um, beast. Look at verse, um, well, look at verse um, 7 of chapter 13. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and na nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Now, here's the second beast. If you notice, the second beast is benign. It looks innocent. It's a cuddly lamb. It's not grotesque. So what does that tell you? Looks are deceiving. The second beast represents false religions and false philosophies of the world. Heresies. Islam. Mormonism. Paganism. Sometimes those are harder to see than when a government's coming down and oppressing you. I was reading... Martin Luther today, as a matter of fact, when I was reading a book, and one of the quotes he said is he said, it was a, it's a book on preaching, and he was, he was talking about he would rather have, he says, a bad preacher is worse than all the Muslims. He called them Turks, but all the Muslims propagating their Islam. Do you agree with that? 
That's an interesting statement. I don't know. I had to wrestle with that. He said, a bad preacher who doesn't preach the gospel is worse than a Muslim propagating Islam. I'll let that hang out there for a minute. Let you struggle with Martin Luther. But here's the issue. You've got government pressure. And so here's, here's what I believe. I believe that these anti-Christian influences have been around forever. They're right here and now. You can see false religions, false belief systems, and you can see government oppression right now. But I also believe they will intensify right before Christ comes back. And I also believe there will be a literal man of sin that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians. We don't have time to go back there, but 2 Thessalonians talks about the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. So I believe that there is going to be a literal person, whenever that happens, who's going to rise and he will captivate the world with both of these things coming together. So let me ask you a question. Each, each culture is different. But if you've got the power of the nations and you've got false prophecies working together, can you influence a global world unless you're a Christian? Okay? So these beasts and false prophets, I think, are symbolic of things that are happening now. But I also believe in the future there will be a literal man who will be the final embodiment of those. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Who that person is, we don't know. It's not Gorbachev. Remember back in the 80s, it was Gorbachev because he had the, the wound, you know, the little thing on his head. Um, yeah. But what's the promise of... Look at verse 8. This is what helps us. This is, this is sovereign election if you've ever seen it. When were our names written in the Lamb's book of life? Before the foundation of the world. Some pastors will say, well, the moment you accept Jesus, that's when your name goes in the Lamb's book of life. What does this passage of Scripture tell you? Your name was already there before the world was created. Now, what does Ephesians 1, 4-5 say? Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption of sons to Jesus Christ according to the will, the purpose of His will. So, regardless of how you view that, who's protected from the false prophet and the beast? Those who are in the Lamb's book of life, which would be who? Christians. One commentator said it pretty cool. He said it like this, The government of Antichrist may destroy their bodies, but it cannot destroy their souls. Jesus said, fear him who has the power to cast you into hell. But don't fear when they bring you before tribunals. Uh, They they may kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Now, let me give you a cross-reference here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 because this is where it talks about the man of sin. Okay, this is Paul's take on it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-14. The coming of the lawless one, this is the literal man, the man of sin, the lawless... Is by the activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. It's it's interesting. Notice what Paul says about salvation. Why did people not want to get saved? They did not love the truth. So loving the truth has a lot to do with salvation. I'm not saying that you have to believe everything about the Bible to be saved, but part of 
your salvation experiences, you've come to understand that this is the truth of who Jesus is in the gospel. Therefore, God send them, sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But, this is where we're protected, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just ask you a question. If you are a Christian and you're living on the earth, are you a target of Satan? Are you a target of the beast? And are you a target of the false prophet? Yes. So just be ready for it. The, the, the hard part about some interpretations of Revelation, when you have an ultimate futuristic interpretation, what a lot of pastors will say is, you guys don't have to worry about this right now because that's a future day when you're raptured out of here and you don't have to worry about it. Now, yes, I'd love to be raptured out of that, but I don't want to prepare you for that because if it doesn't happen, how are you going to handle it? Okay? So this is, this is kind of what we need to be prepared for. Now, let's talk about 666, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's the hardest interpretation in the book of Revelation. What in the world is 666? Is it a barcode chip? Is it a literal mark on your forehead? Is it a literal mark on your hand? Let me ask you an interpretive question. In, well, let's just talk about this. The forehead, why the forehead and the hand? The forehead symbolizes your thought life the philosophy of a person, the way you think. Your hand symbolizes your actions. So when you have 666 on your forehead, on your hand, what it's saying is, is that you've totally bought into an ungodly worldview and it's reflected in your lifestyle. It just basically means you're a non-Christian. Now, is it a literal mark on your forehead? Let me just ask you a question. Where else have we seen people getting sealed on their foreheads? In chapter 7. Those were who? Christians. Can I see yours? Can you see mine? Were they literal seals? In the spiritual realm, they may be. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll see what our seals are. But right now, can we see our seals? Interpretation, revelation. What makes us think that we can just jump to a literal seal on our head and forehead and hand if we've already seen that it's symbolic. In chapter 7, 3 through 4, we saw that it was believers who were sealed. Now, let's turn to Revelation 14 for just a moment, 1 through 5. One of the things that you... Let me just stop real quick and say something about Revelation. And this is an important thing about Revelation. It's not in your notes. There's no middle ground in Revelation. You're either lost or you're saved. You're either one or the other. There's no limbo. And the way that John uses it is that every, go through and he uses a specific term for lost people. Those who dwell on the earth. Now, are we dwelling on the earth? Yes, but is the earth our home? Have we, do we love the world or the things in the world? No, his metaphor for non-Christians is those who dwell on the earth. Because all throughout the judgments, the ones who receive the judgments are those who dwell on the earth. So there's no middle ground in Revelation. You're either saved or you're lost. But let's look at Revelation 14. 
Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, who is that? We've just seen it. It's the totality of God's people. Okay? And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first trees for God in the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Okay. Does this literally mean that only people who are in heaven are virgin males? We have a lot of, not very many people in heaven, are we? (laughs) Or is it, I'm just saying, or is it maybe a bunch of monks somewhere or eunuchs? What, what does the, what's the symbolism there? That they're, they're the pure bride of Christ, that God has saved them, God's purified them, God's made them white. They've been redeemed from the earth. They're, they're blameless in the sense that, not that they never sinned, but that Christ's righteousness has been credited to them. So again, we're mixing metaphors. If we take, it, if we take this literally, if you take the 144 literally, you'd have to say only male virgins are in heaven. Sorry, women. You don't get to be there. But here's what I want you to understand. What describes a Christian? Look at the end of verse 4 or the middle of verse 4. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. What is a Christian? I have decided to follow Jesus. Okay, anyway, we're not going to have an altar call or anything like that. I'm just saying, when you become a Christian, your ultimate desire is to follow Jesus wherever He goes. Now, where does Jesus go? We're not saying mystically, like, we're going to follow Him around heaven. On earth, where, did Jesus, where was the path of Christ? It was the path of suffering to the cross and then resurrection. What's the path for the Christian? Suffering, then resurrection. A lot of people get that mixed up thinking the path of the Christian is we need to have everything now, and if I suffer, there's something bad with that. Health, wealth, prosperity gospel, what do they tell you? If you suffer, if you're sick, if you're poor, Bad. What you need is you need to be wealthy, you need to be, you need to be healthy, you need to have all these things right now, and if, if you don't have those things right now, something's wrong with you. Do we see that pattern in the Bible? We always see, is that the pattern with Jesus? His pattern was poverty, was suffering, the cross, and then, then resurrection, okay? All right, what I want to show you now is a scary passage in Revelation. If you have problems with the doctrine of hell, then let's not read this. But we need to read it because it's in there. Look at Revelation 14, 9 through 12. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. I can't think of any more sobering picture of the reality of hell than that right there. What does it tell us? It's conscious, it's eternal, and it's a place of torment. What does it say there? They're going to experience God's wrath in full anger. They will be tormented, and it goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Now, we should not be gleeful or joyful when we read passages like this. But the Bible is not sanitized with our political correctness. God specifically says there, if you are not a Christian and you die, what is your fate? That's it. So there's an urgency there of sharing the gospel with people because we don't want them to spend eternity there in hell. Now, I'm going to really challenge your thinking. And I don't want you to be more compassionate than the Bible. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, or 1 through 5. We, in our finite, unglorified, sinful selves now, don't understand this. But when we get to heaven, we will be perfect, and we will understand it. But let me read what our response is going to be when God pours out judgment. Revelation 19, 1 through 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality, immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear Him, small and great. What are we doing in heaven at this moment? We are saying, Hallelujah! that God has poured out His wrath on the unbelieving world. Now, right now, that seems pretty cold and harsh. Like, why would we be singing for God to pour out His wrath? That shakes us to our core right now. Like, how dare we do that? But in heaven, we will be perfect, and we will do that with no qualms. And let me just ask you this. Would you rather have it any other way? Would you want a world where God doesn't punish sin? Would you want a world where God gets, gets away with everything? I mean, not where God gets away with everything, where, where people get away with everything and there's no actual punishment. So this is the shocking reality that we as believers in heaven will glorify God that He's poured out His wrath and judgment on the wicked in hell. We don't understand that now, but in heaven we won't have a problem with it. Now, let's get to the exciting passage. The rider on the white horse. I love this part. This is Revelation. I don't know why I said that in a Scottish accent. Uh, Revel- chapter 19, 11 through 16. I was listening to Alistair Begg the other day. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 19, um, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the second coming of Jesus Christ on the white horse. Now, do we take this literally? Yes. Will Jesus come on a white horse? Maybe. Or is a white horse a symbol of victory? I don't really care. What matters to me is he's coming back. And he's going to judge and he's going to make all things right. Whether he's literally on a white horse and the the flame and fire is coming out of his mouth and he's got all bloody, you know, he's all bloodied up or it's metaphorical language, it doesn't matter to me. The point is that Jesus is what? Coming back. Now, let me get get our charts and graphs. And we're going to, and those of you listening online, I'm handing out charts and graphs. These are going to be online on the church website. You can download them in a PDF. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you guys tonight the three predominant end times views that are around today related to Revelation chapter 20. And let's read Revelation chapter 20 first to get a context for what these different views mean. Because, yes. Yes, I'm going to write on the board. Okay. All right. So let's read Revelation chapter 20. And let's see, let me just first say, this is the only chapter in the Bible where the word millennium or thousand years shows up. So there have been three predominant viewpoints based upon one chapter of Scripture, and these have all been throughout the history of the world, not the world, the history of Christianity. So let's read Revelation 20, and then let's go over these views, okay? So Revelation chapter 20, we're going to read the whole chapter because we need to see it all in context because this, is, this sets the stage for how we interpret really the, the whole end times scenario. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So there's the first mention of a thousand years. And threw him into the pit. And shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, 
to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, we're going to look at the first view here on your handout. This view is called amillennialism, okay? On these sheets, I've got the graphic, and on the back, I've got what they believe, and I've got strengths and weaknesses of these positions. Now, I'm going to tell you from the bat, right from the bat, there are strengths and weaknesses on all three. So none of these are foolproof. So I will say this, I, as your pastor, cannot dogmatically say I adhere to any one of these three, jot and tittle, wholeheartedly, airtight. I can say I lean towards one and not lean towards another, but I can't be dogmatic because there's strengths and weaknesses on both. So the best thing we can say is, this is the best place I lean, but I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. And that's why at our church, we don't have an official... We don't say you have to be amillennial, you have to be dispensational, you have to be historic premillennial in order to be a member, or that's our official view. We leave room on the end times for, for wiggle room because we know that there is wiggle room, okay? So let's talk about amillennialism. Now, everything's on this continuum, okay? So we start with the death of Christ on the cross, Okay? So Jesus dies on the cross. I'm not going to draw this exactly the same way that's drawn in here, but okay, so Jesus dies on the cross. He, he raises again. He's, Jesus is up in heaven. The amillennial view says that this is when Satan is bound. Satan is bound at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the sense that he cannot deceive the nations. Now, it doesn't mean that Satan's bound that he can't do anything. It just means he can't deceive the nations, which amillennialists would say that means that the gospel can still go forth in power and Satan can't stop the advancement of the gospel. He's bound in the sense that he can't stop the gospel, but it doesn't mean he's bound in the sense that he can't do anything. Okay, because we know that. Now, why it's called amillennialism, it doesn't mean no millennium. It just means that the thousand years is to be taken symbolically. It's not a literal thousand years. It's to be symbolic of the time frame between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. So an amillennial person would say, we are in the thousand years right now. It's just symbolic of the end time started when Jesus went back up to heaven. So we are symbolically. And what's going on in the present age? Well, Christ is presently reigning in heaven. There's triumph of the spiritual kingdom of God in the midst of the rise of evil in opposition to Christ and His kingdom. Promises made to Abraham, Israel, and David are fulfilled by Christ and His church. Okay? Now, right before the second coming of Christ, 
Satan is released. Because Revelation 20 says Satan's released for what? A little while. In God's sovereignty, he's going to give Satan, in a sense, a period of unlimited, for lack of a better term, rule and reign to wreak havoc. Now, how long that period is, God is sovereign over that. All that Revelation tells us is that after the thousand years it ended, verse 7, and when, the, and when um, the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Where does it say a little while? I remember seeing that. Um, verse 3, yeah. It's, it's, so he might not receive until a thousand years, and, and he must be released for a little while. There, verse 3, a little while. In this little while time, this is where we have this heightened, intensified period of tribulation, period of persecution, period of, of, of oppression, where things just get really, really bad because Satan has free reign. Then Christ is going to come back. We've got the second coming. It is public. It is visible. He comes back. We go up the resurrection or the rapture, whatever you want to call it. It's a simultaneous back-to-back one-time event. Christ comes back, we go up, and we, whoever's alive during this period goes through a period of intense persecution. Once Christ comes back and we go up, there's one judgment, and then you've got the final stage. You've got the new heavens and the new earth, and you've got hell. This is the K-I-S-S in times view. Keep it simple, stupid, okay, or whatever. The main thing you need to understand about the omnilateral position is that the thousand years is a symbolic number to represent the time that we're living in now. And the other thing you need to understand is that Christians will go through a period of intense persecution, tribulation, and the thing you also need to understand is that the second coming and the, and the rapture or resurrection, whatever you want to call it, there's only one resurrection, it's the same simultaneous back-to-back event. Okay? Now, if you look on the back of your sheet here, strengths of this position. What are the strengths of this position? And by the way, I tell you up, up front who all it holds to this. Okay? This is the, let me just kind of give you the history. Amillennialism, this has been, if you look at the top of your sheet, this has been the majority church view since Augustine in the 400s until it morphed into postmillennialism in the late 1800s. This has been the majority view of Southern Baptists until recently, the last 25 years or so. This view is held by the majority of conservative Presbyterian and Lutheran denominations, many Baptists, and finds more friends in the Reformed tradition. People who hold to this view are R.C. Sproul, Michael Horton, Leon Morris, Anthony Hokema, Louis Burkhoff, John Murray, Lorraine Bettner, John Calvin, Augustine, Martin Luther, Mark Dever, Artazurdia, D.A. Carson, Vody Bauckham, Sinclair Ferguson, Ligon Duncan, and many others. Okay? So let's look down at the strengths of this position. Strengths of this position. This position answers the question about many of the texts that only speak of one resurrection and one judgment. Okay? There seems to be a lot of verses that only speak of there's only being one resurrection, one judgment, not multiple resurrections. Number two, this position answers the question of the two-age idea that there is the present age and the age to come. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you go back and you read Jesus in the Gospels, 
When you read John, when you read Paul, when you read the epistles and the gospels, they speak of this age and the age to come. They don't say this age, a millennium, and then the age to come. They make it sound like there's only two ages. We're, we're, there, we're in this age, and then there's an age to come. They don't, they don't speak of it as having a gap between those two ages. So they would say, we're living, this age is the thousand years. The age to come is the new heavens and the new earth. There's no thousand-year literal gap in between those. So this one seems to answer that question pretty well. Also, I'm going to give you... Um, the next ones don't make sense until we look at the other two here, but... Um, for example, question number three um, and four we'll get to when we look at the other two end times used because they don't make sense. Number five, what is the purpose of a little earthly millennium? Once the church has ended and Christ has returned, then what's the reason, what's the reason for delaying the heaven? That's the big question. Why, why a thousand years? Why delay? Why have that thousand years gap? Why not just get to, to the new heavens and the new earth? Another thing, this does not take a wooden literalistic approach to interpreting highly symbolic and apocalyptic literature in Scripture. Let's just ask a question. So far, have we been seeing the number, numbers being symbolic? So why in the world, when we get to chapter 20, would it change to being literal? Okay? That's just an interpretation. Now, what are the weaknesses? Here are some weaknesses. There seems to be some Old Testament passages that speak of a future period that is far greater than the present age, but that still falls short of the eternal state. You've got some Psalm 72, Isaiah 11, and Zechariah. Possibly are some Old Testament teachings about a millennium. Kind of, kind of shady there, not, not ultimately explicitly, but it, but it may. Okay, and then here's another big, another big question with the, this one. Can Satan truly be bound during the church age? It appears that the imagery of the abyss and the ceiling and shutting him in were more extensive in nature. Okay? And then number three, the idea of the resurrection being spiritual in nature does not fit hermeneutically and grammatically with the passage and the verb used for came to life, which every else, wherever every else in context means a physical resurrection. What they say is that first resurrection there, the amillennialists will say that's spiritual, that's regeneration. The first resurrection is a spiritual regeneration. The second resurrection is the literal is the literal resurrection. Okay. So, any questions on the amillennial view before we move to the other views? Okay, we're going simple to most complex. All right. Well, so let me keep. The next one is called the classic or historic premillennial view, and there are a lot, a lot of similarities between amillennial and historic premillennial. One huge difference, but a lot of similarities. So let's talk about this view. Okay? This is the, let's just look at the back real quick here. This view was the view of the early church fathers up until the 400s when Augustine or Augustine influenced a move to amillennialism. This view is most widely held by current evangelical scholars and seminary professors outside of Dallas Theological Seminary and Moody, Moody Bible Institute. People who hold to this view Obviously, the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Papias, George Elton Ladd, Millard Erickson, Wayne Grudem, if you read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, John Piper, and Charles Spurgeon. Okay, so th this is a, some, some strong guys there, too. So let's look at the historic or classic premillennial view. Okay, so let's get to start again with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So you got the cross, Jesus dies, he goes back up to heaven. So you got Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. Okay. 
Now, right now on earth, it's not a literal thousand-year reign, but God reigns through His Holy Spirit in the kingdom. So the Holy Spirit is ruling and reigning in Christians' lives. The gospel is advancing. We are not necessarily in a millennium time period. We are in the church age of the gospel going forth. Okay? Now, very similar to amillennialism, what happens? Right before Jesus comes back, there's a heightened period of tribulation, a heightened period of persecution. We don't know for how long that literally is. It's whatever God determines that to be. Then what happens? Jesus comes back. You've got the second coming, and you've got the resurrection. And again, these are simultaneous back-to-back events. So will Christians go through a time of tribulation in this view? Yes. When Jesus comes back, is it the same exact event as people being resurrected? Yes. That's the first resurrection. So the first resurrection is when we go up, but we don't go up. We go up and we come back down. We meet the Lord in the air, and then we come back down to earth to rule and reign with Him for a literal thousand years. That's why it's called premillennial. It's a literal thousand years. It takes what we just read in Revelation literally. So what's happening during this literal thousand years? Satan's bound in the sense that he can't deceive the nations. The kingdom is consummated. The kingdom is, is brought into place. Jesus is there literally physically on planet earth ruling and reigning. We don't know where he is. He could be from the temple in Jerusalem, but, but we're on the earth. Who's on the earth during this literal thousand year reign? If you died before that, what happens? You go first, you're resurrected to meet the Lord in the air, and then you come back down to earth. Those who are still alive, we get transferred, we go back up, we come back down. Okay. Now, what happens at the, towards the end of the thousand-year reign? What, is, what does the passage say? Satan is loose. So you've got the Satan released, and then you've got this Gog and Magog. You've got this massive, this massive rebellion. Now, I want you to notice the wording back in verse, where is it? Verse 7. Actually, yeah, verse 7 and 8 of chapter 20. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Now look at this. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So is that a small number? That's a huge number. When the Bible talks about the sand of the sea, what is he talking about? Large numbers of people. So it's a huge, massive rebellion. Okay, what happens? Well, you've got the final judgment. There, you know, it, nothing really happens. Satan's thrown into the lake of fire. You've got the great white throne judgment where you see it there at the end of Revelation 20. And then after the great white throne judgment, then you've got the new heavens, the new earth, and then you've got hell for unbelievers. So the only real, real difference between amillennial and premillennial is just the position of the millennium. Does that make sense? Amillennial sees where we're living now as the symbolic of the millennium. But both views, Christians will go through the tribulation. Both views, the second coming and the resurrection are the same event. 
It just so happens that on this view, there's a literal thousand year reign on earth. And then there's this massive rebellion. Now, this is where I get a little troubled. So let's look at the strengths and weaknesses of this position. So let's turn our page over and let's look at the strengths and weaknesses. All right, what are the strengths of this view? It takes a more literalistic approach to Bible prophecy and handles Revelation 20 at face value. Okay? It says, if it says a thousand years, let's take it at face value and let's literally interpret it as a thousand years. It deals more accurately with the first resurrection of the righteous being bodily in nature rather than spiritualizing it. It approaches the Bible through a preferable hermeneutic by viewing the Old Testament through the lens of the New. It does not rule out a special place for the Jews in the end times, but takes the passages that deal with the church being the new Israel more accurately. And number five, it reflects the beliefs of the earliest church fathers who were closest to the apostles in the early church. Weaknesses. Here's a big weakness. Does not answer the question of how evil can exist in the millennium and a rebellion of thousands of people of Satan while living under the iron rod of Christ's earthly rule. So let me ask you a question. This has always bothered me about this view. Okay, we have, an, we have what happens to people that are dead? They are resurrected. They get a what? New a new body. So we are living on earth with a new body. So when you have a new body, you can live for a thousand years, right? Here's my question. Who are these people? The sands on the seashore that, that have this rebellion. Who are these people? Okay, so the question is, who are they? Well, some people say, well, they're people that just lived on the earth during that time that weren't Christians. Okay, how'd they get there? Well, if they started right here, what's the average lifespan of a person? Let's say they were non-Christian when, resur- when this happened, they still were on the earth, and they don't have a glorified body because they haven't had the, the resurrection yet. They are living in a normal body, right? How long are they going to live, probably? They, they may, or because it's a millennium, they may live for a thousand. We don't know. But the problem is you've got people with glorified bodies and people with non-glorified bodies living together in the same place. Second interpretation says these people are the children of Christians. So you're in a glorified body, you're, you're married, you're having sex, and you're having kids and those kids rebel. Now, here's the problem with that. You have a second fall. What do I mean by that? What was the first fall? Adam and Eve in the garden. So you have something the Bible never talks about. The Bible never talks about Christians living in the millennium, having sex, and having children. That If you think if you're in a glorified body and you have kids, hopefully they're going to have a glorified body and they wouldn't have the propensity to sin. So my big hermeneutical question, I, I buy, I mean, some days I look at the premillennial historic view and I say, I can buy this all the way up to this point. And I just can't get my mind around. Number one, I, I obviously Satan's released, but if you've lived for a thousand years with Jesus literally on earth and you've been there, why in the world would you want to rebel to him for the final? And where did all these people come from? Because it makes it sound like it's a massive rebellion, right? Okay. So... Another weakness, it does not address the issue of the two-age idea. We talked about earlier, this age and the age to come. And then it does not address the issue of other texts that apparently teach one resurrection and one judgment. Okay, so does the amillennial view have holes in it? 
Yes. Does the premillennial, historic premillennial view have holes in it? Yes. Have we found a foolproof view yet? No. All right, let's get to the third one. This is the most difficult, the most popular, the most um, exciting, if you will. This is called the premillennial dispensational view. So let's look at, and I had a lot, a lot of tiny writing here, okay? Let me just read to you. This represents the newest and most complicated view of the end times. It was espoused in the late 1800s by John Nelson Darby and later popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible in the early 1900s. This view has mainly been in the independent fundamentalist movement until the past 25 years where it's been popularized by Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, Jerry Falwell, and most TV preachers like Jack Vanapie, and the ever-popular Left Behind series. This has only been a major Southern Baptist view since the late 70s. Other adhered Sir John MacArthur, Dave Hunt, Adrian Rogers, Charles Stanley, Billy Graham, Chuck Swindoll, and David Jeremiah. Okay, so here's where we get, here's where there's a hermeneutic. Now, when I use the word hermeneutic, basically that means is what their approach is to the Bible. Okay, so before I draw the picture, here's their dispensationalists are coming to the Bible with a preconceived idea. Here's the idea. God had plan A. Plan A was for the Jews to receive the kingdom. Okay, so when Jesus came to earth and Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, did the Jews accept his offer? No, they nailed him to a cross. Dispensationalists say if the Jews would have accepted Jesus' offer, then the millennium would have been set up right then and there. Now, what does that do to the cross? Okay, since the Jews did not receive the kingdom, God moved to plan B. Plan B is the church, the Gentile church. Okay, Jews, you're not going to accept the kingdom. We'll start with the Gentile church, and we'll, and we'll go in Acts and start saving a lot of people from all around the world. And then eventually, since God had plan A, he's got to get back to plan A. So somehow he's got to get rid of he's got to get plan B out of the way to get back to plan A. Does that make sense? Because the dispensationalists see there are two distinct plans. There's one plan for Israel and there's one plan for the church, and neither the two shall ever join. That's their, that's what they're coming to when they talk about the end time. So let's draw our little draw our little picture here. They don't see a continuation between God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament as being one group of people just with different ways of, of doing it. They see it as dispensations. Okay, seven dispensations you see at the top there. There's the dispensation of innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, the age of grace, the kingdom. So here we go. Let's draw. I'm, I'm going to have to go draw this one a little bit. Okay, so number one, Jesus offers the messianic kingdom to the Jews. So Jesus offers the kingdom. What happens? They don't take it. So Jesus dies on the cross. He rises again. Everything's the same as it was. Okay, now we're in the church. They call this the church age or the age of the Gentiles. God has moved. When Jesus went back up into heaven, plan A was put on suspension. Okay, the Jews didn't take it, so we're going we're gonna to do plan B. And right now, we're in plan B, the age of the Gentiles. Then there's some signs of the end times that dispensationalists will look at. They'll say, okay, um, Israel's a nation now, so that's a sign. Uh, there's there's got to be evidence of a literal temple being rebuilt because that's going to become important. Um, and so 
you know, Russia is becoming a little bit more China. They look at the nations today and say everything's in place for what they call the secret rapture of the church. So at any moment, Jesus is going to secretly rapture Christians out of the earth where everybody's going to be left behind and wondering what's going on. Okay? Now, when we talked about this earlier, is there anything secret about Jesus' second coming? Do we ever find a secret rapture? Okay, so what the secret rapture has done is it's gotten plan B out of the way. Church is out of the way now. So what can God do now? He can go back to plan A. So what you've got here is you've got the seven years of, literal seven years of tribulation. Okay? This is where the Antichrist, this is where you've got the Antichrist. I think what else do we have here? You've got, um, for the first three and a half years, you've got the wars, the rumors of wars. You've got the 144,000 are literal Jews. Exactly, 144,000 are saved. The two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. They're literally, not symbolically. Um, And then the temple's rebuilt during that first three and a half years. But then in the middle of the three and a half years, the Antichrist breaks the peace treaty with Jerusalem, and you've got this huge three and a half period of the great, great tribulation. And then at the end of the seven years, then then you have the second coming. So literally, in the dispensational view, you have two second comings. You've got the secret coming of Jesus for his church, which only Christians know about. But then you have the real second coming of Jesus when he comes back to the earth. And so in the second coming of Jesus to the earth, he's going to come back. That's going to be the battle of Armageddon. And then he's going to set up his a thousand years, literal thousand year reign. What he's going to do during this thousand year reign is since the temple's rebuilt, they are going to institute the sacrificial system again. The Jews are going to repopulate the earth like they were meant to. Jesus is going to rule like King David from heaven. Oh, by the way, what's going on up here during the seven years while... This is all going down on earth. We're having the marriage supper. And then the same thing. You've got that revolt at the end that we talked about. Then you've got the final judgment. And then you've got heaven and hell. Now, what's the big difference between this and the other two views? Big differences. The hermeneutic of two plans... In this view, does the church go through any tribulation? Raptured out of it. Okay? In this view, does it take things very, very literally? Like a literal temple. Okay, so, this is, so, so let's look at the strengths of this view. Okay? On our last page here, if you can read the writing there. Okay, the strengths of this position. Admirable attempt to take the Bible absolutely literal in all respects. It takes a more literalistic approach to Bible prophecy and handles Revelation 20 at face value as a literal thousand-year reign. It deals more accurately with the first resurrection of the righteous being bodily in nature rather than spiritualizing it. Sees the value of Israel and God's plan. Let's look at the weaknesses. It comes to the text with the bias that God has two plans of dealing with the Jews and the church. Number two, it views the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven as two separate issues. 
the kingdom of God for the Jews who rejected it and the kingdom of heaven for the church, most scholars see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is really the same thing. Instead of interpreting the Old Testament to the New Testament, it fails in this hermeneutic. A secret pre-tribulational rapture must be assumed to fit into this dispensational system of two plans for Israel and the church. Proponents have sometimes been guilty of judgmentalism toward other views in making this a litmus test for orthodoxy, and ultimately this view has been susceptible to sensationalism, setting dates, and naming antichrists. So, are there holes in this view? So, when you look at the three views, can you dogmatically say, I am a blank blank millennialist or whatever? Or can you say, to the best of my knowledge, this is where I lean, but I'm definitely not this? That's where I'm at. Here's what I would say if you want to know where I stand. I'm definitely not a dispensationalist. The last view, I just don't see any. I'm not going to be against people that are, and again, I'm not going to be dogmatic. I just don't see this scheme. Would I like to be a historical premillennialist? Yes, because it takes, I think it, it takes the, the sequence of Revelation 20 a little bit more in the order that it goes, but I have a problem with the, that group at the end. Would I like to be an omnilinealist? Yes, that's probably where I land, but yet I still see some holes there. So at the end of the day, I'll make a cop-out. I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out. But if you, had to, if you had to pin me down, I would probably say this. While not dogmatic and while not making a litmus test for orthodoxy and while being very humble, I would probably label myself cautiously as an amillennialist, but knowing that I could be wrong when I get to heaven or I could be wrong when these events unfold. I think that's the best you can say on these events. The problem is, is that people fight over these end times views and they're more concerned with how the end's going to happen than what we're supposed to do right now in advancing the gospel with what we already know. Okay. Are there any questions on those end times views before we move on? Because we've got 15 minutes left. I know that was really, really fast, but I wanted to share those with you because these are the three. Has anybody ever heard of, did anybody know there were three? Or did you just think there was one? Or do you not even know what they were named and like this was all new to you tonight? Okay. Which one, which one was which? Yeah. Uh, you know, amazingly, the dispensational view is the most popular, but it's the newest. It's what you see most televangelists and most Christian bookstores. When you talk to the person on the street, that's the one, you know, the secret rapture, the seven-year tribulation, the rebuilt temple. That's what most people think about. And if you were to say, you know, I believe we're in the millennium now. <gasps> you mean you don't like the Bible literally? And as Artaxerxes says, do you take Revelation literally? They ask him, Art, do you take Revelation literally? Yes, I take Revelation literally when it tells me to take it symbolically in verse 1. <laughs> so, so I take it literally to be taken symbolically. Go ahead, Don. Why do they think that this view anyway, that the, that the sacrificial system needs to come back? You know, I don't know all the nuances why they think the sacrificial system needs to be back, but I think for some reason they believe the temple has to be rebuilt and in order for the temple to be real, what's the purpose of the temple? What do they do in the temple? Is it just going to sit there? Um, it has to serve a purpose for that sacrificial system because it was the... It's, it's a, and, and most dispensationalists would not... We need to be careful not... My question, though, is it plan A is that we, the plan B people, were lucky and Jesus paid for our sins where the plan A people are going to have to bring their sacrifices no, all the time. Well, here's the issue. When you talk to a when I talk to a dispensationalist, they'll say that we still believe Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. The the sacrificial system is is done as a way of to to repicture those types and shadows to show how it all fit together. 
That's what I've heard him say. You are absolutely right, Shauna. Turn to Acts chapter 2, my friend. Actually, Acts, yeah, turn to Acts because, um, yeah. If you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, this is the first Christian sermon Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and notice what he says. Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Does that sound like Jesus' death was planned? And Yeah. Okay. Look at chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in the city there were, the, there, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Sound like God had a plan? Yes. All right. Let's finish, guys. We're going to go to Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to kind of zip through this. But in Revelation 20 and 21, we have the new heaven and the new earth. And this is the first thing that um, John sees. So let's go back to Revelation. Right after Revelation 20 is Revelation 21, the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, then I saw, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now, there's promise in the Bible that there's going to be a new earth, a new heavens, a new earth. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, you can look on your sheet and see those passages like in Matthew 19, Acts 3. But what's the first thing that John sees in the new heavens and the new earth? He sees the new Jerusalem. And let me ask you a question. What is or who is the new Jerusalem? The church. Why do we know it's the church? Because it was a bride prepared for her husband. So what's the first thing that John sees in the new heavens and the new earth? The church. Decked out in all of her glory and splendor. So the, la- the, the lamb's most prized possession is his bride. It's mentioned first. That tells us how Christ views his church. That should tell us the importance of being part of a community. Now, I don't have time to do this, but you've got your sheets and you can go back. I've got 12 blessings that are ours in the final state. And... Well, I'll just read the 12, and, and you, can, you can go back and look at these later for the sake of time. Blessing number one, God will dwell with us. Blessing number two, an absence of the effects of sin. One of the probably, here's the most important statement in Revelation. I will show you this because I think this is important. Verse 8, what does verse 8 say? I'm sorry, verse um, 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. What's the major image in the entire book of Revelation? We talked about last week. The throne. Shows up more than any other image. 
Who has not spoken yet in the book of Revelation? The one who's on the throne. God has not said a word yet. Angels have been saying things. People have been saying things. They've been worshiping Him. But finally, what are the words that come out of the mouth of God at the very end? Behold, I am making all things new. Number three, perpetual refreshment for the soul. Number four, adoption into God's family. You go into chapter uh, 21, 22 through 27. You see unhindered fellowship with God. You see enjoyment of the radiant glory of God. An absence of fear. You go into chapter 22. When you find out, here's the way the Bible is structured. Beginning, middle, beginning. How does the Bible start? In a garden with the tree of life in perfect fellowship with God. How does the Bible end? In a garden with the tree of life in perfect fellowship with God. So the Bible has beginning, middle, beginning. (laughs) Kind of a weird structure. Access to the tree of life. The total destruction of the curse. Let's just look here um, in verse 3 of chapter, the very last chapter, chapter 22, verse 3. We have just a little bit of time. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. What was the original results of the fall? God cursed the ground. The entire cosmos was under a curse. But what what happens in the new heavens and the new earth? There's no more curse. And I think verse um, 4 and 5 are the beauty of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be. Look at verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will not need light of lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The ultimate blessing, number 10, is seeing Christ face to face. Number 11, the peace of being owned by Christ. And number 12, the joy of eternal life. Now, how does this book end? It ends with the words of him who is on the throne. Throne. Look at um, well, look at verse uh, 22 verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Look at number 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. And then look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So three times in the very end of Revelation, what does Jesus say? I am coming soon. So here's the final question. Are you ready? So we've gone from Matthew to Revelation. It's been amazing to see how long we've done that. So we've got five minutes left. Any questions on Matthew to Revelation of everything that's been stuffed into your head for the past nine months in five minutes? No, I won't do that. Any questions on tonight on Revelation? Um, on the interpretive method, and guys, remember, I'm, I'm presenting to you guys an interpretive method 
that I believe is the, the way I, that I would interpret Revelation, a more symbolic, a more cyclical, a little bit more um, that method. Other people, you may have struggled because you're, you're more of a literal and you haven't been taught that way. Again, I'm not saying that I'm right and you're wrong. I'm saying there's freedom to disagree on, on how you look at Revelation.